Oh, once again, thank you guys. Thank you for your leadership. And uh, John, those songs fit perfectly with where we're going today. I appreciate that. This is, um, <clears throat> it is a powerful thing. You're, you're probably going to hear the Cornerstone song a few times in First Peter, huh? That's, uh, that's a great way to prepare your heart for what's coming. Um, so yeah, we're, we're starting in Peter's letter, um, his first letter that we have. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and if we're lucky, we'll get that far today, those six words. Um, and honestly, what's funny is, as I was coming in this morning, uh, Lance stopped me, and he was like, really, only six words? Is that the play in today? And I was like, well, and we're really not going to spend much time on those last three words of Jesus Christ. And he's like, well, you know, he's important uh, to the whole sermon thing. <laughs> And what struck me about that, this came up in the podcast as well this week, is that there's a lot of ways. You've heard the statement, the, uh, and the statements like this, it's just, they just irritate me, um, uh, but because they, they don't actually make any sense. I get the cleverness of them, but at the same time, they just bug me. You ever heard the statement, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing? You ever heard that? Yeah, that'll drive you nuts. It's, <clears throat> it's um, or, or maybe the importance of majoring in the majors and minoring in the minors, like it's important to to major on the major things. Well, today, what we're going to be doing is majoring on the minors. Um, we're not going to be spending a lot of time on the person of Jesus Christ today. Instead, we're going to be talking about the Apostle Peter. And if the Apostle Peter was here, I am confident he would tell us to move, just move along. Like, don't, like we don't need to spend any more time here. We're majoring on the minors. It's a waste of our time. Um, that being said, I do think it is important for us because it's, it's easy for us, at least <coughs> I think it is for most of us, to kind of feel like things in the Bible are kind of like things addressed to occupant. You know, you get those in your mailbox, it's for the occupant or the resident of this address, and you just toss, I mean, if you're like me, you don't even look at them. I mean, that's an instantaneous in the trash. I'm not even, there may be some kind of sticker in it that I wish I had, but probably not. I'm just tossing it. I'm not even going to look like it's gone. Um, and I think it's too easy for us to do that. And part of what we, it, I think, could be valuable for us as we're going through this book, this letter from Peter, is to get a firm grasp on who this letter is from. Who is this guy? Um, and so we will be minoring, uh, majoring on the minor today, meaning we're going to look at this man we know as Peter. He's the most discussed person in the Gospels, aside from Jesus Christ. Um, he comes up a lot. He, he shows up a lot. He speaks a lot. We're going to throw out some theories as to why that might be in a minute. Um, he was from a place called Bethsaida. Um, Bethsaida is a small town at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Um, uh, I don't have a picture of modern Bethsaida because I'm not convinced it's been found. Um, you go to Israel now and there's a place that's called, you go there, you drive, actually we don't anymore because of this, but you go and there's a sign that says Bethsaida, and, but now pretty, people are pretty sure it isn't. For one thing, it's not very close to the Sea of Galilee, which would be a big problem. If it was meant to be a, a, a community, a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee, and so recently some new discoveries have been made to, for a new place that's much more likely to be it. However, the artist rendering that I have that shows what probably a first century town like Bethsaida would have looked like, I like. I think this is a good picture for us of what these communities would have looked like in this era. Um, these smaller fishing villages and everything in, in Israel is, is hills like that. Every, everything um, almost all over Israel is like that. 
And so you would have these people traveling around. There's Roman guards wandering around. There would have been some foreigners here. The, the northern end of Galilee, there's the, the triangle, Chorazim, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. Um, a major road would have gone right through the middle of here where, where several million people would have gone past this place on a regular basis. But this is where he was from. Um, we know this from John 1. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So there you go. We know where he was from. That's kind of nice. Um, we know that he owned, or at least partially owned, part owner of a family fishing business on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, but we'll come back to that in a minute. You learn all kinds of cool things when you do research like this, especially nowadays when you can Google something and all kinds of interesting things will come up. For example, apparently, um, not that long ago, there was a, um, a test run on eight bones, I think it's eight, uh, that we have that allegedly are from the, I guess it looks like nine, uh, bones that were supposed to be from the Apostle Peter in the bottom of some Roman Catholic church. Um, and so they actually tested them and discovered that they were from a male from about 2,000 years ago. So it's like, maybe, right? And I know you don't care, but it was interesting. It was still fun to me, like, us, oh, maybe Peter's bones. How cool is that? All right, so um, more importantly, he was married. Um, again, when we, to quote uh, Stephen Young, when we biblicize our Bible characters sometimes, we take them out of the context of their real life and we turn them into Mother Goose heroes instead of the real people that they were. And so if you're going to picture Peter correctly, you've got to remember that the man was married. We have a couple of different references for that. One is in 1 Corinthians 9. The Apostle Peter is talking about, uh, I mean, the Apostle Paul is talking about traveling and taking uh, a wife with you when you travel or to even take on a wife, like to get married. Um, even though someone is, is part of the, the ministry of the gospel. Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Um, actually, probably pronounced Kepas in the Aramaic, but, but that's the... Um, so again, he, apparently when Peter traveled, there may have been times when his wife went with him and traveled with him. Um, in fact... We actually have a better evidence that he was married, just that he was married from Mark 1, 29 through 31. And immediately he, um, being Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. So there's only one way to get a mother-in-law, um, and that's to get married. So clearly Peter had, was married because he had a mother-in-law, and he had a good enough relationship to his mother-in-law that when she was sick, he brought Jesus, Right? This was his big opportunity to get rid of her, and it, 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 he instead he brought Jesus to heal him. It says, and immediately he, they told him about her, and when he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, Jesus did, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So here you go. Once again, we see that Peter was married. And, and one of the articles, one of the things I read encouraged us to consider this young wife. To just take, this is a book or a movie just waiting to happen, in my opinion, um, and maybe it's been done, but to consider the role of this young wife of Peter's. So Peter was probably a relatively young man by our standards. Um, there's, there's just almost no way that a, that a student would have been older than their master, and, the, and Jesus was only about 30. And so there's no way at the time that the disciples were older than 30, and there's a good reason, there's good evidence to indicate they were actually probably more in their teens. Um, and that Peter was probably the oldest of them. That may be why the temple tax only needed to be paid for Jesus and Peter, which would put them as, as the only two old enough to pay the temple tax, potentially, um, in a story with a catching a fish and having a coin in its mouth. 
And so it may be when we talk to the book of John that the apostle John was under the age of 13, that's my opinion, and then so, the, so you would have you might have Peter being 18, 19, 20 years old, but from 13, he would have been a man and could have easily been married um, by the time he was in his mid-teens and maybe even already had children. So you're picturing, again, some young Jewish girl, probably in her teens, maybe 20 years old. And, and again, can you picture it? Maybe some of the women here will be able to kind of connect with or identify with what it would be like to be a young woman married to a quick-tempered, impetuous um, man, young man, who talks a big game, who gives up too easily when things get hard. Maybe some of you will be able to identify with what it is to be married to a man like that. And, and that's significant. In fact, one of the, my favorite things that I learned in studying Peter again is that according to church tradition, again, we can't know this for sure, but according to church tradition, she was a believer and actually um, and did travel with Peter, and at some point when they were arrested, uh, when Peter was in prison, probably when he wrote this letter, he was in prison in Rome, and, and that when he was in prison, his wife was as well. And then in fact, according to tradition, they intentionally paraded her past Peter's cell to go martyr her before him. And so you can imagine, can you imagine the emotion of having your wife taken out of a cell and taken past you to be martyred for the cause of Christ, um, and we'll get to we'll talk more about this in a minute. But the idea that apparently, according to legend, what Peter said to her was, "Remember our Lord." It's a pretty potent story. Hope this was the case. It also, when we get to First Peter later in First Peter, when he talks about husbands and wives, um, that you can imagine Peter thinking of his probably saintly wife. I mean, if she was married to him for long, probably his saintly wife when he wrote those passages about godly wives. So we'll get to that in a little bit. It's different. When Jesus talked about marriage or when the Apostle Paul talked about marriage, neither of them were married. And so we're going to get a different feel for that. Um, he was a fisherman. That's what he did for a living as a fisherman. At the north end of Lake Galilee, so Galilee's, um, Lake Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee is not much bigger than Lake Palestine. Um, at the north end of it, they, did, they don't have a a Hebrew word that delineates lakes from seas, and so they just call everything a sea. And, and anything that you can't swim across uh, is a sea, and everything else is a river kind of thing. And so, and so at the north end of the Sea of Galilee are these springs. There's a few springs up there, and some of them are now invisible or are covered, but there's a couple you can still see, and they, they dump out warmer water. Um, the, the Sea of Galilee is almost certainly an old volcano uh, cauldron, um, that's why it's nice and round and neat and has mountains going all the way around it and why there's a whole bunch of black stone to build things with up there. And so, uh, and so what you, they get earthquakes up there. We'll mention that again here in a second. But, uh, um, uh, but this is a, so what happens is this warm water comes out of the ground and it creates algae at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, which of course attracts fish, which means the north end of the Sea of Galilee is prime fishing location. Now it's been fished out for a long, long time. They've restocked it and they try to keep them all going again. But throughout history, it's been overfished, and so they have to have periods of time now when no one's allowed to be out on it fishing. But um, it's prime fishing property, and certainly 2,000 years ago it would have been. Had at least three other men in his crew, and they worked with, that had worked probably with his father, and James and John still did work with their father. And it was a hard, it was hard work. Um, fishing all night, typically all night, maybe all day, but fishing all night, throwing out nets and dragging them back in and trying to catch things. And it was, it was hard work, um, dirty work, smelly work. 
Um, but it was a good job if you could get it in that part of the area and have a good spot. But it was also kind of a scary job. Um, the Sea of Galilee is very windy and very prone to storms. Again, it, because it goes down like this, winds will come in or sweep in as very prone to storms. And to me, one of the things that fascinated me was a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, they discovered what they call the Jesus boat, um, which is a first century fishing vessel that they found on the Sea of Galilee buried in the mud. I think I have a, a picture of it. One of the things you'll notice, one, um, about this, quote, boat, um, is that it's, it's, it's made out of more than a dozen, like a dozen different types of wood. All the different colors at the bottom are different types of wood. And it's made of hundreds of little strips of wood. Not, not they didn't cut down a, a big old redwood and they cut a boat out of it. This is more like going down to West Texas or Central Texas and cutting down a, a few dozen mesquite trees and stripping a few bits of wood from them and then gluing them all together. Those are all glued. They're not even nailed together because they're not big enough for that. They're just glued together. Now you can imagine, those of you who are, who are people who go out in boats on a regular basis, why they panic when they get caught in a storm. This, this has no business being on the wall. I wouldn't get in a bathtub in this thing. It is, it is that unsafe. Of what they were possibly thinking is nuts. But it is a, when, when, you, when you see these boat, when you see this boat and, and the condition that even that it's in um, when they put, tried to put it back together and everything, it, it's being out on one of these things all day because there wasn't any big wood left in the Middle East. The Romans had destroyed it or the Greeks had burned it. And so it wasn't there anymore. And so you've literally got them gluing together little bits of wood and then calling that a boat and being out fishing it all the time. And it does get windy. We actually had, last time we went and we're on the Sea of Galilee, we had strong enough wind. We, there was, I tried to get these um, four ladies, we were trying to take pictures on the boat, and it was a hard time they were having their hair blow in their faces constantly the whole time. I jokingly said, like, we had, uh, we had four supermodels that were, we caught in a, in a video shoot, and this was the, anyway, that was them. And, and they kept going, they were turning, they would look at the wind, and they'd go, ready, turn, and try to turn so that the wind wouldn't blow in their face. And it, uh, as you can see, it didn't work very well. Um, anyway, that was a, that was, that's, it is windy all the time out there. And that was a nice day. So here we go. There we are. That's what he does. He's, he lives, he's from Bethsaida. He spends all his days fishing, except when he goes home to his wife and probably by, uh, whatever age he's at, maybe kids by then. So how does he meet Jesus? How does this, how does this kind of fisherman from Bethsaida, how does he come into the world light? And he does throw, throw through the person of Jesus. We have um, in John 1.40, we have the introduction of the two of them. So Andrew's brother was a follower of John the Baptist. Uh, uh, Peter's brother, Andrew, was a follower of John the Baptist. Um, and maybe Peter was too, we don't know. But one of the two, this is from John 1 verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak, meaning John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon. There's a whole lesson in this. Paul taught it to our students not that long ago at D-Now. But he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter or Kephas. Peter, Petros. John loves to unpack things for us to explain it as he writes it, which is also often great. But keep in mind, this is the very first meeting. Think of what a surreal, odd, converse, first conversation this is. I mean, Peter, Peter gets brought by Andrew to Jesus. Jesus is sitting there. He walks up and he's like, hey, this is the guy John the Baptist was saying is the Lamb of God. I want you to meet him. Hey, Jesus, this is my brother, Peter. Or this, this is my brother. That's all he says. I can imagine it. This is my brother. And, and Jesus says, oh, you're Simon, the son of John. Your name shall be called 
the rock. What do you say to that? Like, this is your very first interaction with this guy. You can imagine Peter going like, oh, wow, what a weirdo. Like, this is, a, this is going to be... This is going to be quite an adventure, right? What, what just happened here? It's very similar to Jesus' early conversation with another of the disciples. In Luke 5, they interact with Jesus again. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Okay, so let me stop for a second. You'll notice if you didn't grow up in church, you may already be confused. Because you're going, well, which is it? Is it Simon? Is it Peter? Is it Cephas? And the answer is yes. Those are all three names of... His mother gave him the name Simon um, or Shimon. Uh, would have been the way she pronounced it, Shimon. And probably named after one of the heroes uh, of the Maccabean rebellion against our old friend Antiochus Epiphanes. And so that would be, he was probably named after one of them, one of those family members. And a lot of people were named Simon at the time of Jesus. Jesus, Mary, and Simon, uh, those are all very famous names from that time. And so, and that was his name. Well, the very first meeting that he has with Jesus, Jesus goes ahead and tells him something about his own future. Hey, you're going to be called Capus. Someday people are going to call you Capus. Okay. I mean, like, I don't know what you say to that. So that's, that's what Jesus, by the way, Jesus likes doing that with Peter. He regularly tells Peter, this is something that's going to happen to you later. This is going to happen at some point. This is what's going on in the spiritual world right now, just so you'll know. He gives him a little bit of a picture of it. So here you have, this is, this is the picture. Jesus is teaching on the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds keep near the sea, and the crowds keep pushing and pushing and pushing. They keep crowding him. They want to get closer and closer. People want to hear him. They want to touch him. They want to whatever. And you can imagine, so if you guys started doing that, I would have to go out one of those doors and, and back and back and back and bound all the way down to our lake. And then what would happen is if there was a boat in that lake, or especially there was a guy down there fishing, and there probably is a guy down there fishing right now, that I could get in his boat and I'd say, like, hey, push out for the shore a little bit so these crazy crowd can't get any closer. Then I could be 10 feet out and I could teach to you and you could be all along the shore and more of you could hear me and see me without closing in any closer. And that's exactly the picture that happens here in Luke chapter 5. So, Gennesaret is another name for the Sea of Galilee. It's also called the Sea of Tiberias. So if you run into those, they're all the same place. Just like Peter, it has at least three names. He saw two boats by the lake... But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets and getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put a little out from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So it makes sense. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, Lord, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Again, tiny little teachable moment here. I love this. So Jesus is a teacher, maybe a rabbi. Maybe he's been trained as a tecton, a carpenter, or a stonemason. And here he is giving a fisherman advice on fishing. So we're, we're in East Texas. How does that go? Like if, you're not, if you know nothing about fishing, and you get in a boat with a fisherman, and you tell him or her, this is, hey, you know what, you ought to be doing this. That usually doesn't go over super well. So I love the beauty of the picture of, of Peter, who has already declared, already in his mind, sees Jesus as his Lord, as his master, which means he's the Lord and master over everything, even his career, even his fishing. And the normal temptation is for us to go, well, this, no, 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 this is what I know. No, no, I know this. So this is the thing that I stay in control of. This is my expertise. This is what I know. This is what I stay in control of. And here Jesus is declaring himself even Lord over Peter's fishing. 
So you should go out into the deep and let down your nets again. And of course, Peter resists just a tiny bit. You hear it in his voice, don't you? I mean, I mean, we fished all night and we didn't catch it. They're not, they're not biting. I mean, they're just not. And I don't know if there's like an a awkward pause here for a second while Jesus just looks at him or if he's already got this in his mind, but whatever, Peter goes, but I mean, since you're saying to do it, I'll do it. This makes no sense. That's not even where the fish normally are. They're usually in the shallow up here by this algae. You tell me to go out in the deep, fine, that's what I'll do. They go out in the deep, they let down the nets. And it's so, so, and when they had done this, they closed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to the partners on the other boat to come and help them, and they get both, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Now, I think this is just beautiful. The, the, the chemistry, the friendship that develops between these two men. Jesus knows Peter so well. And Peter doesn't get Jesus at all and almost never does. But, but Jesus knows Peter so well. Notice Jesus doesn't call down fire from heaven to get Peter's attention. How do you get a fisherman's attention? Well, you fill his boats up with fish. That's how. Jesus, Peter in this moment understands what's happened is that Jesus has just commanded fish into his net and the fish obeyed. That's, just, that's amazing. That's a, and, and Peter knows this is a miracle. This is a miracle Peter understands. Why does Peter get to experience it? Because he submitted to God even the thing that Peter thinks he gets better than everybody. God gets that better than him. Jesus gets that, even that better than him. And then finally, Jesus calls Peter away from his nets one last time. Matthew 4, 18-22, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. Jesus' four disciples. So I want you to have this in your head as we talk about this man, Simon. So I'm going to have them put up the panoramic, that, one of my favorite pictures of the Sea of Galilee. So as you see the beauty of this place where they live. Simon was married. He probably had children. He had a thriving business and a family. He lived in a beautiful place. Simon had a life. And it was a pretty good one. He was faithful to God. Potentially even with his brother following the teachings of John the Baptist. And although we don't see the evidence that Peter betrayed any of these, in fact, it sounds like he traveled maybe with his family, he did change his relationship with them. He had to prioritize Christ as more important. Now, not his opinion of Christ, not his perception of Christ, not the Christ who he had invented to be like what he wanted. It's amazing how often Christ backs our preconceived notions, isn't it? That's because we're, we're creating a God who wants us to do what we already want to do. It's amazing how often that's the case. It's sad for someone to claim the name of Jesus when they are ministering poorly to their spouse rather than what Christ actually teaches, or poorly to their family, or poorly to their community, and Christ is their excuse for that. And despite the tradition, isn't it possible? Isn't it, it seems like even likely to me that Peter's conversion, it doesn't sound like Peter went home and checked with his family before he began to follow Jesus. 
It may be that his wife was frustrated with him when he did that, or his children were frustrated with him when he did this. Maybe even there's a a gap between the conversion of him and the rest of his family. Maybe some of them never did, because it's possible he was abandoned by his children. Is it possible they refused to follow Peter when he followed Christ? At least at some point, I think that's the case. Mark chapter 10, something triggers Peter to say this. Peter began to say to him in Mark 10, 28, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal in the age to come eternal life many who are first will be last and the last first i think one of the things we run into sadly in our culture today among christians is that if you ask a christian what the most important thing in their life is they will tell you their family and that's wrong um, listen, our family is our first ministry. We must minister to our wives and our husbands ahead of anyone else. <clears throat> we must minister to our children ahead of everyone but our spouses. We must minister to our family and our community and our neighbors and our church family ahead of others. I think that's exactly the calling that God has given us. But that doesn't put them in a position of prioritization above Christ Himself in our lives. To do so just turns our family into an idol. And that's something that we have to be wary of. We always have to be careful that we don't say, no, the most important thing in my life is my family, because there may come a day when your wife is going to be marched in front of you, in front of your cell, to be martyred. And you've got to know to be able to say, remember the Lord in that moment. Not to say, listen, just tell them what they want to hear so you can go home and take care of the kids. Listen, just deny whatever they want you to deny. You can repent later. Listen, just, just, be, just pretend like you're ashamed of Jesus, and then maybe they'll let you go to be able to say to our spouse, you must remember the Lord just like I have to in this moment. Like that's, That to me is significant. We have to keep that in mind, that prioritization. And Peter models that beautifully. And I love what Jesus promises to him. Listen, he does not deny that. Yes, you may have to give some of these things up. Yes, and, and some of these things, it's, it's like we give them to Christ and then he gives them back if he wants us to have them. Good things. But we go, listen, this, this is the stance I've got to take. This is what I've got to do to follow Him, and this is what it means to follow, to follow Him, because these things may be demanded of me. They're His, not mine. And Jesus says, yep. And I also want you to hear that the truth is that in this day, this age, and for eternity, I'll repay you hundredfold. A hundredfold in fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. Like I, I hope that's your experience as a Christian is that you're able to see that. You're able to be that for people. You're able to be the return that Jesus gives to other people. Um, I write about this and talk about this. It's one of my favorite things, especially talking to students. Man, if you have a boring Christian life, you're doing it wrong. If you, don't, if you aren't beginning to engage with people who can be your spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and sharing their lands with you and their wealth with you and the opportunity to just travel around the world and whatever else in the name of Jesus Christ, you may be missing something. It's amazing to get to see the blessings that come with this. How did a man named Simon, living in Bethsaida, become one of the, become one of the heroes, one of the best-known human beings in the history of mankind? How is that possible? I mean, he's got cities named after him. He's got cathedrals named after him. He's got a burg in Russia, right? So this is a, how, did that, how does that kind of thing happen? Well, it begins really in a powerful way 
at a place called the Gates of Hell in Caesarea Philippi. So, so let's get that picture up. Here's Caesarea Philippi today. In the time of Peter and, and Jesus, so when Jesus brings this, these 12 boys and maybe a few other followers to Caesarea Philippi, at this time, this was Vegas, this was Las Vegas and San Francisco and other bad places all rolled into one at the same time. These niches and nooks were all filled with pagan idols and pagan temples. There was all kinds of weird behaviors and, and, and temple prostitution and sacrifices and all that stuff was going on here all the time. And Jesus brings these, these 12 young men to this area. Every time I go, I can, it just, there's actually a set of stairs and I'm like, this has got to be where he's set. It's got to be right. This is where any good teacher would sit. Sit here in the, with all this going on behind him and saying, okay, who do people say I am? I mean, look around you. Who do people say that I am? He asked them. When Jesus said, come to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Notice he interchanges Son of Man for I. All of you students of Daniel, that means a whole lot to you now, right? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied. I think it's funny that verse 16 starts with Simon. Peter's not his name yet. We've got another couple of verses. But just to clarify who he is, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is a great statement. I also think it's a little bit of a backhanded compliment. I mean, you didn't come up with that. There's no way, son, that you thought of that. God must have, in this evil, dark place, I'll tell you, when you go to this day, at least when I do, I get the willies a little bit. Like the hair stands up on the back of my neck when I walk up in a cesarea of Philippi. Something still just feels wrong about that place. So you get in there. He's, he's there with them. All this horrible stuff is going on around them. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father who is in heaven. In this place, God still speaks. God still works. And I tell you, you are Peter. Now he gets, he finally gets his name. You are Kephas, Petros in Greek, the rock. You are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Man, what a powerful statement. We always have to keep in mind, we feel on the defensive, but, but it's important to always remember the gates, gates are on the defense. It is that the gates of hell won't prevail. They won't stand. And I, and I do love, again, I'm probably over-teaching this, but I just take a second and point out. She'll put the picture back up. Do you see Zeus or Pan, two of the main gods who are worshipped there? I don't. They're gone. It's empty. Now what happens is group after group after group after group go stand in this place and teach this passage about the person of Jesus Christ right there at the gates of hell. There's actually a cave that was kind of probably euphemistically called the gates of hell, where they worship Pan. There was a, a, a water source there, and they would throw dead things and whatever down in it because they thought it just went all the way down. So maybe that he's literally saying, like, these gates will not prevail against my church. And I I've been up there before and seen four other groups, and they're all teaching the same passage right there in the middle of gates of hell. Like, yeah, someone won this fight. Well, here and here we see the dichotomy of Peter. In one setting, you get this. Peter, Petros, <coughs> he's given the name the rock. That's verse 
18. Let's pick up in verse 21 of the very same passage. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He cats out of the bag. He might as well explain it to him now, right? Who he is. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, don't you love this picture? Look, Peter, Peter's, you know, he's read, he's, he's read a little bit of Drucker. He knows you don't confront people in public. He pulls, he pulls Jesus aside to confront him because he doesn't want to embarrass Jesus in front of his other followers, right? So he pulls Jesus aside and he goes, far be it from you, Lord. What Also a great juxtaposition, exactly the opposite as before. Let me explain something to you, Master. <laughs> that doesn't go well together. This should never happen to you. This shall never happen to you. And he turned on Peter and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. There's a different nickname for you. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man, just like six verses ago, he got a message directly from God the Father, and now he's channeling Satan. Like, this is Peter for you. The up and the down. In the same passage, he speaks and then he thinks. He never seems to really get Jesus. He's so impulsive. He is the... Jesus is the, I mean, Peter is the patron saint of the impulsive response, right? That's us. It's why when we studied through the book of John, we kept coming back to this image over and over and over again, the, uh, the statue that's supposed to be of Jesus weeping. You got it? There we go. But I think it looks more like face palm Jesus, um, that over and over again, you have him saying like, really? I mean, this is a, this is the guy who walks on water. That's amazing. No one's ever done that, but like him and Jesus, as far as I know, and then he sings. He draws his sword. He promises Jesus, I will, I will die for you. If everyone else betrays you, I won't betray you. And then he proves it. As you remember, we read this in John. He draws a sword, essentially committing suicide. He draws a sword and he goes to work. And Jesus is like, no, no not now. Like, now's not the time for this. this. Isn't the right response in the right place? Peter, no. Put your sword up. You're, you, he, Peter's never in there. He's, he's, he's got this impulse. He's all passion. He's all power. He's like, I've got it. Now's the time. Now I'm going to act. Got it. And then it's the wrong time. It's the wrong place. And so in one moment, literally, he's in the dark in a garden ready to die for his Lord. And what? A couple of hours later, he is denying that he even knows Jesus because there's a serving girl who says he has a weird accent. That's it. That's Peter, the up and the down, the, the, the this and the that, and that the, the mercurial attention deficit, inconstant Peter, like a, like a rowboat out of the Sea of Galilee, caught up in the wind, washed to and fro, and that's us too. That's what it means to be human, is we are the ones washed around. We are the rowboats on a sea in a storm, and it is, he is next to Jesus himself in scene after scene in Scripture, Jesus, who is constant, peaceful, tranquil, powerful, strong. So while Peter is like, a, is like a, a rowboat made out of strips of glued together wood, in a storm, Jesus is like a lighthouse, shining out, immovable. And when we see the restoration of Peter, as Peter is restored by his friend Jesus back into ministry, if you've not heard that, you need to go listen to the John 21 sermon um, on the restoration of Peter, I think it's one of the most powerful passages in the Bible, um, as Jesus restores his friend and, and then declares that he would die for him in the end after all. After the restoration and after the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Peter becomes much, much more like Jesus and much, much less like Peter. And this is what sanctification means.
What it means for us to be justified and to be, have a right relationship with God. I've heard sanctification defined as the process of getting used to being justified. And for us as humans, I think that's very powerful. We are like that rowboat, and we need to become more like that lighthouse. And we have the model of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in us to conform us from us to Him. That's what it's supposed to look like. And as we get to see this with Peter across so many years, it's such a great blessing to get to see that. You can change. There can be a change in a person's character, a change in a person's basic identity. And interestingly enough, he doesn't change Peter's personality very much. Peter is, is Peter less passionate or less zealous or, or even less angry? They're all still there, but they're directed by God rather than merely Peter. Peter goes, goes from being in Peter's hands, a weapon in Peter's own hands, to being a weapon in God's hands instead. Disciple Peter becomes the Apostle Peter. His focus is on God's grace as a speaker and as an author. After the Holy Spirit rests on them and seals them, Peter goes straight into the Pentecost crowd and proclaims the gospel. He is empowered. He goes from hiding to proclaiming from a disciple, merely a disciple now, to an apostle. And he calls on the crowd. He quotes from the prophet Joel. And he quotes from King David to prove the identity of Jesus Christ. Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 souls are added that day. The church had a cornerstone and an owner, and now it had a rock as well with the message. Now, he's not perfect. He still, there's the whole situation where he sits with Jews rather than with Gentiles, and Apostle Paul has to call him out on it. So don't, don't think of that Peter becomes perfect. He doesn't. He's still a flawed human. But the transformation is stunning. Even secular authors note the powerful transition, the tra- powerful transformation that happens in Peter. And so much rested on him. He was arrested, held in Rome at the time this was written, and crucified. And according to tradition, he begged his killers to hang him upside down so that he wouldn't die the same way Jesus did. He didn't think he was worthy to die the same way his master did. And apparently, there would be no reason for them to do what he wanted, but he was convincing enough that they agreed to potentially crucify him upside down. So what does it mean that Peter is an apostle? I'm going to move through this part really quickly. I want us to understand this idea of an apostle here, the way it's described here. I believe we're talking about something very special and almost unique. We think about the, respond, the difference between a, uh, the way all of us, like Stephen Young said, he had all of us repeat that, I am a leader. And the way that all of us are leaders, but we aren't all in an uh, office of leadership. So you could be, you're all leaders, but not everyone has the office of elder, for example, in the church. That's not the same. Those aren't the same thing. Everyone's a leader, but not everyone is an elder right now. That's not their office. The same thing might be said of prophecy. One would, anyone who proclaims the word of the Lord is in some ways acting as a prophet. If you proclaim the word of the Lord, that is what prophecy is. It's the proclamation of God's truth. That doesn't mean you have the office of prophet. You shouldn't put that little sign on your desk, prophet. One, it's a bad idea. It may mean you have to lay on your side for three years or marry a prostitute. It also means your job description probably begins with, they will kill you. Um, and those are, those are tough. Um, so you may not want that anyway. And I think apostles similar to that. I think the apostles were the foundation of the church and they had a special office. There's a sense in which we're all sent. We're going to talk about that. Apostle just means sent. Think of the same thing with servant. Everyone is supposed to serve. Not everyone has the office of Deacon. Deacon is just the Greek word for servant. 
And by the way, there's not a lot of clarity. We're not sure when the Bible's talking about an office, or when it's talking about a job title, or when it's talking about a gifting, or when it's just describing someone's attitude. We don't always know. That's why churches have different denominations based on these type of things, because we don't know for sure. There's a distinction here. And I think these, these people had a special job. In fact, at the time, there was a job title of apostle for the governor, I mean, for the emperor. You could be an apostle for the emperor, one sent by him. If you were the apostle of the emperor, it's like being an ambassador. If you spoke, you were speaking for the emperor himself. If you went and agreed to a treaty, the emperor was now bound by that treaty. The Roman Catholic Church, one of the places where we would be different in our theology from the Roman Catholic Church, um, as a Baptist church, we have plenty of um, Roman Catholic brothers and sisters who we love and work with. But this would be a point of difference um, that the, in the Roman Catholic Church, it's precisely this that gives their leadership the authority to speak for God. I'm quoting from one of their sacred writings. Therefore, the sacred council teaches that bishops, there's about 5,600 of them right now in the world, by divine institution have succeeded to the place of the apostles as shepherds of the church. <clears throat> Listen to this phrase. He who hears them, hears Christ. He who rejects them, rejects Christ and him who sent him. So I would disagree. I don't, I, I, again, I love a lot of the Catholic brothers and sisters, but I disagree with this stance. You can reject me without rejecting Christ. In fact, you may have to someday. Never know. You can reject a, a teacher without rejecting Jesus Christ himself. When I get up here and teach, I am trying to explain or teach the words of Christ rightly. But I can make mistakes. I do it all the time. It's not the same thing. You hearing my teaching is not the same thing as reading God's Word. I'm not speaking the words of Christ. I want to. I strive to. But that's no guarantee. Revelation 2, so I am not an apostle in that way. I, don't, I, do, I, am not his, I am not, do not speak for Him. If I say something and it disagrees with Scripture, I'm the one who's wrong. Revelation 2.2 2 references, I know your works, this is to one of the churches, your toil and your patient endurance to how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. It doesn't mean all apostles would be false, but it means they all should be tested, and even back then that was the case. 2 Corinthians 12.2 gives us some of the indications of what that would look like. The signs of a true apostle are performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Though not definitive, when the original leaven were trying to replace Judas, one of the things they were looking for was someone who had been an eyewitness from the time of Jesus' baptism all the way until his ascension. Obviously, none of us can fall into that category. An unwavering dedication to the gospel was a requirement, that they proclaim the name of Jesus and that they perform signs and wonders and mighty works, all of those representing miracles. In Ephesians 2, when, when the Apostle Paul um, is talking about this idea of this foundation, the foundation of the apostles, why would there need to be a generation of people who could, at, at, at their own decision through the power of the Spirit, could perform mighty works as normative, as something that they just did? Listen to this, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. I think the apostle Paul there is saying there were the prophets who proclaimed Jesus' future ministry. Then there were the apostles 
who proclaimed his current ministry and who he had just been. And then there is the church who lives out his ministry. And those are three different offices, three different job responsibilities. That's why I think there's different things. The prophets had different norms and the apostles had different norms. And I believe we do now. I do believe any Christian could be involved in a miracle, any one of us. The Holy Spirit could use any one of us to perform any kind of miracle that he saw fit. A sign, a healing, a wonder, whatever it is. I hope many of you have experienced that in your life. But I believe the original foundational apostles had a special warrant to call upon God for signs and miracles. Think of it in this way. These were the tools of the worker. Miracles were. A plumber needs a wrench. A soldier needs a weapon. A pilot needs an airplane to do their job. And the apostles had miracles. It was a tool of the labor they had been called to. Um, this is a, they had the original power. We struggle, we deal with these things very difficultly in our own hearts. Meanwhile, the apostles were casting out demons and healing every kind of disease and performing other signs. When the apostle Paul wants to defend his apostleship, he says, he talks about the fact that he had blinded a sorcerer, healed the cripples, cast out demons, raised a dead child, and been unhurt by a venomous snake that had bitten him. His apostleship was tested and proven. Even it had to be proven by the original uh, 12. He heard the gospel from Jesus himself, and therefore he stood among the apostles and they agreed. I want you to have that in your mind because we're getting a special message that's different. When you read 1 Peter, it's not like hearing me preach. The apostle Peter was speaking the truth of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit directly. John 17, though, notice that Jesus is going to call us all, in a sense, apostles because we all are sent. We're not all apostles in the job, title, office perspective, but we are all sent. The name itself, the word apostle, sent. Listen to John 17. And you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now you may be thinking, well, this is... That's John 17. He's speaking just to the apostles. This is in the upper room. This is at the Last Supper. You would think that, except he clarifies it in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We're the ones who have believed through their word. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may be in us and the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay, so back to the majors. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So notice, this is what we're going to get over and over again in the book of 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter. Peter was not his name. His name was Simon. And yet Jesus Christ bestowed an identity on him, Petros, the rock. That's what I'm going to build my church on. Your proclamation, not just you the man, of course not, but the proclamation that you have made, I will build my church here. That was Jesus bestowed this identity on Peter. You are Peter. Then he bestowed a job on Peter, an apostle. Those both come from Jesus. Of Jesus, Jesus Christ made me Peter, and he made me an apostle. This is super important and super powerful as we read the rest of this letter. That the, what, What's going to happen over and over again is that our identity is going to be declared in Christ. And then our activity proceeds from that declaration. How we live out that ministry is going to come from it. Who we are, and therefore how we live. I want, I want to encourage you as we, and, and I will get, I mentioned a first service. I'm sure I will get worked up about this in the next season of, of studying First Peter. 
But one of the things the world is trying to steal from us right now is bestowed identity. The world is trying to tell you that the only person who can tell you anything about you is you. And you understand, if that's true, Peter is neither Peter nor an apostle. He is Peter because God says he is Peter, he is the rock. And he is an apostle because Jesus said he is an apostle, he is sent in his name. And we need to be able to live that out as well as we face these pressures to go, you can't take this from me. The things that God has given me, no man can take. So I hope that's where our minds are going to be and our hearts are going to be as we're prepared. Stand, if you will, and let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the goodness of your word. We're so grateful for the power of your word. I'm so grateful that this letter exists to challenge us. I'm thankful that you are a God who declares, who bestows identity on your people, on your children. And as we study through this letter written from you through Peter, by his scribe, that we will be impacted by the power of your word and it will be changed by it. That we'll be sanctified, conformed to the image of your son to live out the ministry he would call us to. Even under persecution and pressure, that's our prayer. Thank you, Father. We love you so much. We're so grateful to be a part of who you are and what you're doing. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. We have this time of invitation. It's a time to, to ponder, to think, to pray, to listen, and to sing, to respond as the Spirit leads you. If you've already gone through our Welcome Home team and you're ready to come join this messed up family, then we would love to have you come do that um, as well at this time. But however you need to respond, listen to the Spirit, praying where you are or here or um, whatever the Spirit leads. All righty, guys? Thank you.